0: I bet you to turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians if you um, want to open the scriptures there. We're starting a uh, series of messages through this letter of Paul's to the church in Corinth. And over this next number of months, we'll be going through this letter together. And so I encourage you to take time in the week ahead to, to read through the whole book. Um, You might find some things, if you haven't read through it uh, recently, that are not only shocking and surprising, but also very relevant and applicable to uh, the the world we live in uh, in these days. And we'll be looking at that together uh, as we go forward. I want to open with two questions. Who are you and whose are you? Who are you, and by that I mean how do you define yourself? From whom or from what do you receive your identity? Do you kind of define yourself? And whose are you? Meaning, what has ultimate claim on your life? What is your first love? What is your, your unhindered devotion? What takes your time, your attention, demands your service? Employers want you to define yourself in terms of your career, so that you're an engineer or a teacher or a, a, a programmer, a nurse or a, a, an accountant dedicated to serving your company and your customers. Advertisers want you to define yourself by a product. So you're a Chevy or a Ford or a Toyota person or a, a, an iPhoner or an Androider or whatever it is, loyalty to a particular brand. Politicians want you to define yourself by your political ideology or certain issues. So you're progressive or conservative, you're pro-this or anti-that, you're committed to a particular party or platform. The world of sports wants you to be a devoted fan to a particular team or a particular uh, sports star, and the entertainment and social media industry are a constantly flowing Uh, stream of things by which to define yourself, the majority of them being related to beautiful figures or carefree lifestyles or self-expression or sexual attraction or social influence, and we can just go on and on and on. Even in the church, we can find our identity primarily in certain denominations or doctrines, particular preachers or programs different worship styles or spiritual practices. And the Bible reminds us over and over that while those things are part and parcel of the reality of the world in which we live and they do have impact, some good and some not so good in our lives, we as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, our identity, who we are and whose we are has been radically changed. It's been It's been. Uh, moved from being defined by the, our relationship to the things of this world to now being defined and centered around our relationship with God. The truth, that's all over the Bible. We are new creations in Christ. We are born anew by the Spirit. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now sons and daughters of God. We are citizens of a, a, a different kingdom, the kingdom of God, a heavenly kingdom. We are sinners who have become and are becoming saints in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And understanding and embracing that reality, that new identity of who we are in Christ and whose we are as God's treasured possession, it is fundamental. It is foundational to actually experiencing and living out that identity In our relationship with God himself, but also in our communion and our community together as God's people in the church. Being rooted in our union with Christ is critical to our being empowered, our being equipped, as we heard last week in Pastor Kyle's sermon, to work properly and to walk worthily together, to be built up, to grow in maturity as the body of Christ, the embodiment of his presence and his power here in this world. And, and I emphasize the we. <laughs> I emphasize the we. Because our identity, our calling as saints, is a corporate one. It's not individual. It's not just me, it is we. Paul is writing here and he's speaking not just to you, but to y'all. Or if you're from the North, to use, or use guys, or however you say it. I never, didn't live up there, but we're not just the hands and feet of Jesus, but Paul says we're the whole body of Christ, knit and joined together to display God's work and to be God's witness in the world. And, and as we begin this sermon series through what we know as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we'll see later is actually his second letter to the Corinthians, he mentions a previous one which we don't have record of the church we, we begin we, we will see this emphasis that we the the calling and the and the identity that God has given us is a corporate calling and how we live that out is significant not only to our own spiritual walk but to how we witness to the world and the church in the city of Corinth. In first century was a young body of believers who faced that that timeless calling that struggle of every church and that is to live out that new identity that we have in Christ together to be in the world but not of the world and as we'll see as we go through this letter they were not succeeding at it very well but before we jump into the letter let me let me give a little bit of background that is helpful This was a church, as we read in Acts 18, that Paul had had just founded a few years earlier. And through the empowering, equipping, encouraging work of the Spirit in Paul's own life and in the life of those he was going to, it had grown substantially. And so Paul's writing to friends, to fellow believers who had been called into into fellowship with Christ and and with him and with one another by God's grace in the gospel, but who now, as Paul discovers after he's, he's left there and moved on to Ephesus, were having some very deep, significant problems in their relationship together. Not problems like, what kind of music should we have or should we do small groups or not or or you know are we going to meet our budget this year but moral and theological problems like did jesus really rise from the dead sexual scandals among members members suing each other in the courts Deep divisions occurring between rich and poor. An air of superiority among different factions. And disorder and confusion at times in the church's worship and ministry together. And add to all that that many of them in Paul's absence from them had begun to question him and to attack Paul and the validity of his ministry and message. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, thankfully, our church is not like that. (laughs) And hopefully, you don't feel like that about me as your pastor. But in reality, if we're really willing to look honestly at the church today... And even in our own hearts, in our own lives together, all of these issues, issues of pride and division, questions of authority, marriage and singleness, sexuality and gender issues, litigation and liberty, spiritual gifts and worship practices, debates over foundational doctrines, they all still exist. And they all still hinder and harm the healthy walk and witness of the body of Christ, and so the first century church in Corinth was not that different than the 21st century church in America and really in many other parts of the world today. And that's because the city of Corinth and its ethos, its environment, was not unlike what we find in our culture and others around the world today. Due to its loca- location, uh, Corinth was located on a, a significant crossroads between, of land and sea in the area of Greece. And because of that, there was a wealthy, influential, multicultural, religiously diverse, kind of cutting-edge city that encapsulated all that was magnificently grand about the Roman Empire as well as all that was morally bankrupt. It was as cosmopolitan and as corrupt as any place in the Roman Empire. It was a center of international trade, And thus you could go to the market in Corinth and you could see people from every place in the world and buy products from every place in the known world at that time. It was a hodgepodge of of cultures and a hotbed of economic activity. And the city loved its entertainment. It boasted an arena about the size of the RBC center that we have here where they would host the the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games of the time, as well as other sporting events and, and theatrical performances for the people's pleasure. You could find temples and shrines to a host of different deities throughout the city, including a large temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and Apollo, the goddess of music and poetry, both of whose worship was accompanied by deviant sexual and sacrificial practices. Its importance as a Roman colony meant it had a strong military, a strong government presence. And its proximity to Athens drew its share of the well-educated and the wise to the town as well. So Corinth was, was, was kind of like Wall Street and Times Square and Hollywood all balled up into one and placed in one one area it was a it was a vanity fair of its day such that the word the verb Corinthianized came to be associated with a sense of anything goes (laughs) in terms of morality and it's into this environment that Paul arrives in Acts 18 that we read earlier he's alone he's exhausted from a difficult tour of ministry having been beaten and put in prison and run out of different towns to use his own words in chapter 2, verse 3, he comes in weakness and fear and much trembling. And yet Paul knew who he was and whose he was. Paul, an apostle, called by the will of God, a sent one of Christ Jesus and God immediately equips him and encourages him to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. And then he provides for him a long way, he provides a home and a job with this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. He preaches the gospel at the local synagogue. And when they reject him, I love this, Paul, God literally opens the door next door. <laughs> and Paul just goes over there and starts preaching. And one of his first converts is the leader of the synagogue, Crispus. And not only him, but his successor as well, Sosthenes. Who, as we see in the opening of this letter, has traveled with Paul in ministry. And God encourages Paul in a vision to not be afraid, but to keep on speaking. Keep on testifying. Because I am here with you, and I have people in this city. My power will call many to myself. And God does that over the next 18 months. Of Paul's ministry as many who heard him believed and were baptized. So fast forward a few years and you can imagine how heartbreaking and discouraging it is when Paul learns through a, a letter sent to him and a, brought by a group to him in Ephesus of all the division, all the dysfunction, all the problems and disorder going on in this young church. Alistair Begg, pastor, says the church at Corinth was the perfect church. The perfect church to leave. The perfect church to find fault with. And yet we know there's no perfect church. No perfect church where issues of sin and sometimes grievous sin do not need to be addressed with biblical truth and love. Where struggles are happening. And so Paul loves this church enough to write them a very tough but a very loving letter. And God loves his church enough to have preserved this letter to speak to us and to equip us as his saints to work properly and to walk worthily and to witness faithfully together in the body. So think about it. How would you, if you were writing this letter in Paul's situation, how would you have started that letter? Dear Corinthians, what in the heck is going on? (laughs) What are you thinking? And Paul doesn't waste any time getting right to those issues. But he begins, as we read, on a note of grace. A note of grace and gratitude. And he begins by reminding them and reminding us of who we are in Christ. And whose we are. When Paul looked at this church from the outward standpoint, there was not a lot to to encourage him. But he recognized that what was going on outwardly did not match up necessarily with what was true of them inwardly. And so he he reminds them of those things. And he reminds them particularly of three things that I want to look at briefly in the rest of our time. He reminds them and us that we are called by God's will. We are gifted by God's grace. And we are kept by God's faithfulness. Called, gifted, and kept. Paul begins by saying You're called, we are called by the will of God. That word kaleo in Greek is a huge one. It has all kinds of import and significance for us as God's people, which we'll see as we go through this letter over the next couple of weeks. But indeed, it is the basis of the Greek word for the church, ekklesia. We are the called out ones. We are called. Paul understood that about himself. He says, I, Paul, called by the will of God, he knew exactly who he was and how he came to be that. And he knew it had nothing to do with himself, and it had everything to do with God. Paul's self understanding is wrapped up in this, this idea of his calling and his, his identification as an emissary, as an ambassador. Of Jesus Christ and the one who has called him. Were that not true, he likely would have given up on this church pretty quickly. But he doesn't. Because not only has he been called by God, he also knows that they have been called by God as well. Verse 2. To the church of God. Not to Paul's church. Not even to the Corinthians church. To the church of God in Corinth. Located there. But then look what he says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul says we are called by God out of something and into something. We are called from something to something. We are, we are sanctified, meaning that we are set apart from sin to holiness. Called by God to be saints, holy ones. But not just individually, called together. To be saints together. And not just there in Corinth, and not just here at Ambassador, but saints together with everyone from every place who has been called and calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again down in verse 9. God has called you into the fellowship of his son. Not just with his son, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember some of you who uh, like J.R. Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings, his trilogy, In that first trilogy at the council of Elrond which was this place where where uh, a gathering had come together of all this diversified and somewhat fractious uh, groups the elves and the dwarves and the men are gathered with their representatives and they're trying to decide who's going to go on this suicide mission to carry the ring of power into the evil land of Sauron and deposit it in the lake of fire in order to to, to break his power the power of evil over the area and they're in this council and they're all just arguing and who's, who's the strongest to be able to do it or, or who should have it and go and, and, oh, you can't do it because this and this. And they're just, it, it becomes this big argument going on. And suddenly Frodo, who's brought the ring thus far, he stands up and he says, Wait, 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 I will go. I will go. And everyone is silent, and they all look at him. And then one by one, those who are there begin to pledge themselves. And their unique gifts, and their unique abilities, and to come together and accompany him on the journey. To enter into this communion, this fellowship, together for a particular mission and purpose. The fellowship of the ring. And the purpose and the goal, the result of God's call to us in union with him and communion with him who has overcome and, and defeated all evil and death, he calls us into fellowship, the fellowship of his son, for the purpose that we would carry out and be, and live, be witnesses to his, wor- his, his purposes and his work in the world. And that's why we profess in the Apostles' Creed, which we're studying, that we believe in the communion of saints. That's us. We believe that God has called us to himself, and he's called us in unity together. He's set us apart in Christ. He's made us holy, and he's put us on a quest. Bound together in a common purpose with a testimony about what he's done and what he is doing in Christ Jesus. So why are you a believer in Christ? Why are you part of the body of Christ in the church? What is at the root, the foundation of your identity as a sanctified sinner, a saint? It's the fact that you are called by God, you are set apart by him and in communion with him. And as a result, you are in union and fellowship. We are in union and fellowship together as his people. So foundational to our testimony, to our witness, is our identity, and our identity is this truth. We, we's, us, y'all, we are called by the will of God. While we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God sends his Holy Spirit. He sends the hound of heaven to you at your office or in your home or at school or in your fraternity house or you know, in the local bar or wherever it is, and he says, you are mine. Follow me through the gospel. And why does he do that? Because he knows you, and he wants you, and he loves you, and he is going to use you Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. Perhaps right now, God is calling you to enter into fellowship with him and with his people. Because it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So at the root of who we are, whose we are, is this truth that we are called by God in his grace. And grace is what Paul emphasizes next. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace God has given you in Christ Jesus. We are not only called by God's will, but we're gifted by God's grace. And it's not just a little grace. He says, but in every way you were enriched in him. When God calls us, he also gifts us with grace to become what he has called us to be we are saints and we are becoming saints as we walk together in the lord this is what's called sanctification we are sanctified when god calls us to himself in that we turn from sin to him but then god continues his grace to work in us to change us and transform us more and more into the image of christ and he does that Through our fellowship together. (laughs) He does it in the body of Christ. Interestingly enough, Paul mentions two ways in which the Corinthians had been enriched. In their speaking and in all knowledge. Two things that later on we'll we'll find out they were actually misusing. They were distorting into a source of pride and a cause of division among them. And so sometimes we may use, we may abuse the very gifts of grace that God has given us, meant to strengthen us together and, and build our fellowship together. We may use it in a way that actually tears us apart and dishonors God. And when that happens, it hurts. There's problems. We struggle. It hinders our growth and maturity in Christ, both personally and corporately. It gets us, as, as, as Kyle said last week, out of joint, and, and causes various pains and problems. But when we recognize that, that these are gifts we have been given by God and that we've been given them for a purpose to enable us to, to work together properly, to walk together worthily in our calling, then God will use those gifts to do his work of grace in our lives together. He will use that to sanctify us and make us his witness in the world. In fact, notice what Paul says. He he says, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You're not lacking in it. Peter says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and you say, God, that's not really true. There are a lot of gifts I don't have. Maybe you're thinking... I can't teach the Bible. I have no musical talents. I'm not very good at sharing my faith. I don't have a lot of resources with which to be generous and give to others. I'm terrible with kids. I don't even like kids. We can hear this and we can look at our own lives and we can immediately get discouraged. We think we should be able to do all things in Christ who strengthens us. And then when we can't, we beat ourselves up or we feel like we have really failed. Anybody feel like that? I know I do a lot. But remember who Paul is speaking to here. The church to y'all, to us. The body of Christ, the saints of God together. When he says you are not lacking any gift, he doesn't mean every single, each one of you individually. He says together, we, the body of Christ, we are not lacking in anything that God needs to shape us and to to do his work in us. We're called to be saints, and, and Paul will devote a couple of chapters later on in this letter making that point that each of us is gifted in a way that, that all the others of us need and that many of us don't have, and thus there's no part of the body, no member of the church who is unimportant, who is unnecessary, who is not significant. You are called by God. You are gifted in a way that without you—and now I am talking individually— That without you individually, this fellowship, this body of Christ, God's kingdom work around our community and in this world is missing something. Boys and girls, hear this. You don't have to be great at everything. That's kind of the pressure we face in our our world today. That's what we think. You don't have to be great at everything. Everything. In fact, you don't necessarily have to be great at anything. God has made you great just by virtue of who He has made you and called you as His own and and equipped you to live for Him. He will use you in your school, in your home, with your brothers and sisters, in this church. To do great things for him. And that includes all of us adults too. We don't have to be great at everything. Because God has gifted us each with his grace in a way that makes us together great for him. So we're called together by God's will. We're gifted together by God's grace. But how do we know that will last? How do you know that the faith that you have this morning here as you come in. That the work of God in your life will be there next week or next month or next year or in 10 years? How do you know that you will endure, that, that we as a, a body of believers will overcome the struggles we have? How do we know that you will, we will stand firm in the faith against all the trials and temptations and difficult things that we see in the world around us and we experience in our lives together? Well, it doesn't happen just by hiking up our, our spiritual bootstraps and saying... We need to work harder or we need to do better. There may be some truth in that, but our confidence is not found in our ability to keep the faith. Our confidence is in the truth that god we are kept by God's faithfulness, God's ability to keep us because of his faithfulness. As believers, we look for and long for and wait patiently for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ Our calling and gifting as a body is to continue to live our lives growing in grace and faith, walking according to his truth, seeking to testify to his presence and power uh, in the world and in us. And yet, often we look around and we look at the church around us, we look at ourselves, and we feel like we're failing and, and falling miserably along that journey. And that may be true. I mean, imagine being in the church at Corinth. Some people were probably looking at all that was going on and saying, this thing is never going to (laughs) fly. You know, we can't get along. We can't even agree about some of the most basic fundamental things that we know are true. What kind of confidence could they have, could Paul have, that anything good was going to come out of this? And then they received this letter. From Paul and one of the first things he says to them you're called by God's will you are gifted by God's grace and you will be kept he will sustain you because he is a faithful God Paul basically says you you're gonna make it <laughs> you're gonna make it Christ is coming back and when we stand before him we will be blameless not because of our great gifts Not because we were part of the perfect church, but for the same reason that we stand blameless before him today. On the cross, our sins were forgiven. Your sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. And in him, in Christ, God calls us. He justifies us, makes us right with him, reconciles us. He sanctifies us, and he says, I will glorify you as well and why will God do that because he is the one who is faithful that's why in difficult circumstances when cancer hits when divorce strikes when the pink slip comes when a child dies when sin is exposed when your community looks like it's just going all to pieces that's why when we think, how are we ever going to get through this? You remember who you are and whose you are. You are called. You are gifted. You are kept by God. And he has put you in communion with a body here in Apex, North Carolina and in this community. And with a larger body throughout all the ages and all the earths as a means of conforming and carrying forth his testimony and his work in our lives and into the world. And so we are defined by who we are and whose we are in Christ. And friends, that means we are ultimately totally free from being defined or defining ourselves by the world's many and varied identities. We're free from living according to the world's ways, from pursuing the world's gifts, free to live and pursue the grace and truth of Christ and to use the gifts that he has given us for his glory and for the good of others. That's true freedom. Free to know that no matter what, God will work in us and he will keep us to the end. And if you're here today and you say, well, what if I'm not called? What if that's not true of me? We sometimes wrestle with that as as good Reformed believers sometimes, don't we? (laughs) Well, God speaks to us through his word. And he's speaking here this morning. and, and, And he gives us ears to hear and see the hope that this truth is for us. And if you're wondering about that, it's truth for you. The fact that it is God who calls. It is he who gives his gifts. It is he who keeps us in Christ means that he is absolutely free to call whoever he wants. And he will do it. And thus there's no obstacle in your life or my life, no sin that we have committed, no doubt that we have, nothing can prevent God right here this morning from opening our hearts to the gospel and saying, come, follow me. Call on my name, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will indeed be saved and sanctified and kept to the end. Let's pray together. Father. As we work our way through these messages in this letter, this book that you have kept for us, that you have written to us. In which through which you will continue to, to convict and convince and sanctify us together, we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning, first and foremost, to remember who we are and whose we are. We are your children. We are called by your grace. We are citizens of your kingdom. And we are joined together as saints, sanctified and set apart for you here in this place and around the world to testify to your goodness and your greatness that others might hear your call and follow you as well. Lord, would you sink that deep into our heart, make that our identity, not just individually, but corporately here as the body of Christ. And, Father, that when people ask us, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a person at ambassador? Why do you go to that church that our answer might be? Because the Lord has, has called and redeemed and gifted us and is working in and through us daily to make us more like him. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.